Good morning. Turn your Bibles with me to um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll be in verses 15 through 29 to the remainder of, uh, of chapter 7. Kids, in the Bibles that we've provided you, or if you've got a Bible on the back table, that is found um, uh, beginning on page 556. Let's begin reading in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. This is God's word. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been as far off and deep very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is God's word. Not the clearest cut passage you would prefer to see as a preacher come up on the on the sermon calendar on the text calendar but I think if we can if we can take a step back and maybe look at it with a more of a broad brush we can understand what the preacher's getting at here what he wants to show us originally is is that we live a life of uncertainty of course this is not the first time we've been told that We've heard it over and over again that this life is uncertain. Last week, we read the preacher say in 6.12, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes away like a shadow? For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? So what makes this life vain or uncertain in the eyes of the preacher? Well, the fact that we don't know when this life will end, that's a big part of it. And we can't do anything to slow that day from coming. 
nor can we do anything to make our days good or bad. And as we thought about last week, we don't even know what a good or bad day is in the grand scheme of things. Because we read that bad days are good for us. And this week, the preacher describes vanity in a slightly different way in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evildoing. So we see that there's no method. There's no unlocking the code to this life. There's no scheme that we can come up with that makes this life predictable. And this is what we want in life. We want formulas. We want economic exchanges. If I do this, this is the way my life will turn out. We want to know how to make life work. But God does not cooperate with us. God doesn't seem here to reward uh, us according to our disposition toward him. The preacher has seen righteous people die in righteousness and wicked people prolong their life by doing evil. We understand this, don't we? We see missionaries or other faithful ones who are killed solely because of their righteousness. Their uncompromising righteousness and a desire to please and honor the Lord. And what does it earn them? Death. We've also heard of dictators or despots who have killed rivals or stolen from their people. And we've seen them live long, happy lives off the hard work in the backs of others and building themselves up by surrounding themselves with thugs or brute squads. This can make life maddening for us. It's no wonder the preacher calls this a vain life. But just because this life is vanity, that doesn't mean that there isn't a purpose or a meaning to it. And as we closed last week's passage, we concluded that the best thing for us in this life is to live joyfully in the good times and to live hopefully in the difficult ones. Okay, so how do we do that? That's what we consider in this text in 15 through 29. What is essential in order to navigate this life of uncertainty? What what must we focus upon? Righteousness and wisdom? We know that righteousness and wisdom won't extend our lives. We've seen that clearly. But perhaps it will improve the quality of our lives that we don't know when begins and when ends. Both wisdom and righteousness are commended by the preacher. We've seen it several times before. We see it in our passage here. In 719, wisdom gives strength to the wise man. More than 10 rulers who are in a city. In Ecclesiastes 3.12, we right after saying that God has put eternity in the hearts of man, yet he's made it so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. So what helps us navigate that uncertainty in 3.12? I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good or do righteousness as long as they live. And so the preacher has commended wisdom and righteousness, saying these are very good things for us. So it may surprise you that the preacher seems to back off of commending wisdom and righteousness 
in this passage above all other things. He does it in an odd way there in verse 16. (laughs) Be not overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. Does this mean that the preacher suggests a life of moderation? That you shouldn't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. One could think that because in the next verse he says, don't be overly wicked either. So in other words, be remarkably mediocre for the glory of God. I don't think he's saying that. Instead, it seems to me that he's trying to help narrow our focus. If we're going to ask what the main thing is, if the main thing is to make the main thing, keep the main thing the main thing, what's the main thing? And the problem that we have with making wisdom and righteousness the focus of our lives is that, I don't know if you think this, but I certainly experienced it in my own life. I seek wisdom and righteousness so that I may be able to navigate this life of uncertainty without leaning on Christ. So if I can be smart enough or I can be righteousness enough on my own, righteous enough on my own, then I don't really need the Lord too much. I can make do. And so I think that's what the preacher is driving us to. If we're trying to find out what the main thing is, how do we evaluate that? There are problems with pursuing wisdom and righteousness above all else. There are problems with wisdom and righteousness being the main thing. For one, by whose standard do we determine what is righteous or wise? Yours? This may be what the preacher's getting at in verse 16. Be not overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Forgetting the grace of God in this and just setting out to make yourself righteous and righteous and wise was the way of the Pharisees. We all tend to have a higher opinion of ourselves than we realize. But the Bible doesn't take too kindly to people who are wise in their own eyes. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man that is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. As a matter of fact, it's even more serious than that. Isaiah 5, 21 God says, woe to those who are wise in their, own si- in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Likewise, the Bible doesn't give much hope for the person who defines for themselves what righteousness looks like. In Deuteronomy 12.8, Moses chastises Israel for doing what was right in their own eyes. And that becomes the dreadful synopsis of the book of Judges, right? In Israel, at that time, there was no king in Israel. And so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That signifies bad things. But, okay, so we don't pursue our idea of righteousness or wisdom. But what if we were to pursue wisdom and righteousness by someone else's standard? The problems are many with this, but let me just mention two. First, just because a group of people are in agreement on what is wise and righteous, that doesn't make it right. 
That's a lesson every Christian learns in the world every single day. Conventional wisdom calls a good thing a a bad and a bad thing good. But secondly, if we're to follow other people's standards of wisdom and righteousness, we may slowly begin to turn to them for approval because we want to be wise, we want to be righteous. And so we begin to practice our wisdom and righteousness before others whose opinions we value. So if you seek the approval of man, you may meet, uh, or let me, um, the preacher warns against this in 721 and 22. Don't take to heart all the things that people say. I, before we go any further, there's a hint of, there's a tint of sarcasm throughout this passage, I think. And so, and so when he says, don't take to heart all the things people say, lest you hear a servant cursing you, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So, um, if you seek the approval of man, you may hear something you don't want to hear. You may hear something unfavorable about yourself. And then what are you going to do? Once you head down this path, you protect yourself and maybe you justify yourself. Or maybe you go seek out others whose opinions match yours, who will tell you what you want to hear and, ingre- and you end up ingratiating yourselves toward them. But that's the problem because... We don't live for an audience of many. We live for an audience of one. Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. But the preacher gives us another reason why we should not pursue wisdom and righteousness above all else. Because wisdom and righteousness are unable to keep us from sin. Why can't righteousness keep us from sin? Well, 720 says, because there are no righteous people. There are none. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We see the preacher elaborate on this a little later in in, verse 28. When he says that the preacher sought out some righteous people and he only found one among a thousand men and he's yet to find a righteous woman out of a thousand. Now, before we dismiss the preacher as misogynistic here, let me just say that the odds aren't very good for either. One in a thousand versus none in a thousand. But who knows what he really means by this? One possible explanation for this verse is if we think that King Solomon wrote this. Think of the people he encountered in his life, like the prophet Nathan, who advised Solomon's father David as well as Solomon early in his reign, who directed David to righteousness, who pointed out, who enabled David to see things as they truly are and not trying to justify righteousness in his own, eye, in his own eyes, was wise in his own eyes. Now think of the women that Solomon was associated with. The Bible says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, a thousand. All of them were from foreign nations. Probably not many were trying to call him back to God. Which leads us to why wisdom can't keep you from sin. Because it didn't the preacher. Verse 23 
All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And in two nine, the preacher tells us from the in the beginning of his experiment that wisdom guided him, and um, uh, he he used wisdom to guide him in the indulgence of the flesh. He tried to test his heart with all kinds of things, including concubines. He tested it all. Yet he tells us, "I did so in wisdom." I tried to lay hold of folly, yet keeping from falling prey to it. Now, this was, an, this was a scientific exercise. I was wise, and I did all this on my own. You don't do it because you're not wise enough, but I did it. But look at, at our passage at 725 and 26. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets. And whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. The wisest man in the world, according to 116 took on this world with wisdom as his protection, and he utterly failed. Flip over to 1 Kings 11. Kids, that's on page 291 in the Bibles that we have provided y'all. 1 Kings 11. Down there at the bottom of the page on the right. 1 Kings 11, 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women among the, uh, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not solely true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Wisdom did not protect him from the snares, the nets, and the fetters of sexual temptation. This doesn't mean that women are the problem. This is written from the male's perspective. This is a problem for all of us, and not just with sexual temptation. It's true of all sin. Wisdom alone will not keep us from wandering down the path of folly. Brothers and sisters, this is an important warning for us. We can never tame sin. 
We cannot manage it in any way, shape, or form. It will one day rule over us. We can't just enjoy a little taste and not get caught. It's like the deer eating corn at the feeder day after day with no consequence. No, man, we've got it all figured out. No, this happens twice a day. It goes off in the morning. It goes off in the afternoon. You can hear it. You can just go over there and you eat corn all day long. And as a matter of fact, there are guys that come and they fill it back up. It's amazing. There's no consequence. We've got life figured out. Until that first Saturday in November at first light. This is why I think the Proverbs... Um, adulteress that represents folly is so effective in Proverbs chapter 7. Look over there. Proverbs 7 21. Proverbs 7 21 on page 532 kids. Proverbs 7 21. With much seductive speech she persuades him and with her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. We can walk through this life thinking we're doing good. We've got everything made. Everything is on the dashboard. We're all out in front of us. Life is good. We're wise. We're not easily fooled. We're not struggling with sin. It's like we get this thing licked until we don't. And then, bam, the trap closes on us. We've trusted in wisdom. We've trusted in our own wisdom. We've trusted in our own righteousness. And we have foolishly walked into the trap of sin. At this point, though, we're, we must confess that we're confused. Because if righteous and, righteousness and wisdom aren't essential to living this life of certainty, then what is? Before I answer that, I'd like to direct your attention to two passages in Proverbs that point us away from righteousness and wisdom into the answer to our question. Proverbs 21.2 Every man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Proverbs 3.7 Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What's the answer to our problem? We must fear God. Fearing God is the essential thing we need in order to live in this world of uncertainty. Now, we, talk, we thought about what fearing God meant back in when we considered uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 5, one through nine. We described it as the fear a child has for their father or their parent. The child doesn't want to offend their parent. You don't want to displease them or um, um, that uh, you don't want to displease your parent because the parent is your child is the child's life. The parent is the sense of security, the sense of love and the sense of meaning. And so 
That is what the fear of God is like. It's constantly living for his approval and seeking your, setting your eyes on him. In, in Ecclesiastes 7, 18, in our passage, he tells us that we shouldn't trust in righteousness or wisdom, nor should we seek to find the solution in wickedness, which would be foolish, but instead we should fear God. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The one who fears God can escape wickedness and folly, and the one who fears God can escape righteousness, self-righteousness, and wisdom. And down in verse 26, it's the fear of God that keeps us from sin. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. But wait a second, John, that doesn't say fears God. It says it's the one who pleases God. While that's true, we cannot please God if we're relying on our own wisdom or our own righteousness. Instead, we're going, no, I don't. I'm fine. Back off. I don't need you. I'll do this on my own. I figured it out on my own. When we do this, we're trying to manage this life without God. We've got it figured out. So the one who pleases God, we consider this in our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. But if this is the case... And that the goal is knowing and fearing God, then why are wisdom and righteousness commended so much and, and seem to be present where the fear of the Lord is present? Because when you fear the Lord above all else, you grow in wisdom and righteousness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Look over at Psalm 112. I got you jumping around today. You're going to get all get rewards, Bible drill rewards today. Um, Psalm 112. Uh, it's on page 509, kids, in your Bible. Psalm 112. Look at that. How does it start? Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. Verse 3, his righteousness endures forever. And in times he doesn't understand, in the darkness of uncertainty, 112.4, look at that. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Look at down at 7 and 8. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So righteousness and wisdom come from the fear of the Lord. You want to live like we read last week? where we can live hopeful lives in the midst of suffering because we know that it can actually be good for us and we can be confident, 
Do you want to not be afraid of bad news? Do you want to not walk through life like we're living in a haunted house where you're afraid what's around the next corner? Do you want a firm, steady heart that trusts in the Lord in spite of your circumstances? Then fear the Lord. Look to him as your approval. Look to him as your guidance. Look to him as your wisdom. Look to him as your righteousness. But what's interesting is that when you fear the Lord, the wisdom and righteousness that comes from fearing the Lord is noticed by the world, but it's largely invisible to you. This is what I think the preacher's getting at there in verse in 8.1. Who is like the wise? And who's knows, who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. Who does this remind you of? First thing I think of is Moses. Look over at Exodus 34. I told you we're jumping around. Page 75, kids. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold the skin uh, and behold the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him Moses wasn't aware that his countenance had changed similarly when we fear the Lord our focus is on him and pleasing him and not man this is the beginning of wisdom but it's not just true of wisdom where we are unaware of being wise. It's also true of righteousness. When we fear the Lord, we have a better understanding of who God is and his character and a more realistic knowledge of ourselves. I think the most obvious example of this in the Bible that illustrates the concept of our entire passage today is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke, 18, in Luke 18. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. Luke 18. That's on page 877. So in Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So he's, he's preaching this to, to people who trust in their own righteousness. And so the Pharisee He's praying to God, thanking him for his righteousness. He believes he's giving glory to God for his righteousness. This doesn't seem too out of line for us. He's acknowledging who his righteousness came from, right? I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast, I tithe. But in contrast, look at the tax collector. The tax collector couldn't even look up. He couldn't even look to heaven couldn't lift his face but instead says to the Lord God be merciful to me a sinner 
And Jesus says in 8.14, in, in, um, in uh, verse 14, that this man, the tax collector, is the one who went home justified. Why? Because he wasn't trusting in his righteousness. He sought the righteousness of God. And he knew himself to be a sinner. He was not aware that he was righteous. He was not aware that he was justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think this is one reason why Christians often struggle with depression and discouragement. Because they're so aware of their sin. It doesn't feel like any progress is being made. Because the more we see God for who he is, the more we see the wretch and the filth in our own life. And it's like every time we turn around, we've got, we got another thing to clean up. It's a struggle. We don't feel like we're making headway. This comes about by fearing God. Think of Isaiah with his vision of the Lord on his throne. What does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We try to serve you as a congregation every week in leading you to fear the Lord. We pray prayers of adoration, thinking seriously about who God is and how he has revealed himself to us in our scripture readings and in the sermon. We sing hymns to help us exercise in this exercise as well. Think about I ask the Lord. Go home and just read that, read that hymn again today. It's, a, it's an amazing hymn. It's a rare hymn that helps us to think about how the Lord uses discouragement found in the awareness of our sin to show us our need for God and to lead us in fear toward him. We have a prayer of confession that gives voice to the frustration of our souls. This, there's a prayer in the Puritan devotional book, The Valley of Vision, called Yet I Sin. And it's just a prayer for a guy going... I don't understand why I keep sinning over and over and over again. Why do I do this? Why is my heart cold? In the hymn we sing during the Lord's Supper today, how sweet and awesome is the place. In that hymn, we confess that we have no wisdom or righteousness of our own. In fact, we can't explain why God so graciously chose to open our eyes. Why God so graciously invited us to the feast and enabled us to answer and say yes and respond. But we ask him that just as he showed pity on our sin, that he would turn around and show pity on the nations. And that he would do so more and more throughout the world. We also show you this every week in the Lord's Supper. We say that this is a meal for sinners. But not just ones that say, oh, okay, you got me. I agree. I'm a sinner. I love to sin. I got it. But sinners who know their sin and who also know that God has provided a way to be forgiven. Jesus said that the healthy have no need of a physician, 
But Jesus Christ didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the sinner. And he did so perfectly. He, he did so by living perfectly. Out of love for the Father. He lived in perfect righteousness and wisdom because he, is, he fully knows God's ways because he is God. And he died not because of his sin, because he had none. But he died for any person's sin who will ever acknowledge their sin, turn from it, and trust in Christ for his righteousness rather than trusting in their own. And Jesus was raised from the dead as proof that that penalty for sin had been paid. And he ascended into heaven and will one day come again. And those he finds trusting on that final day in their own righteousness and in their own wisdom, they will suffer their, the eternal penalty for offending an eternal God. But those who are found trusting in Christ's righteousness, who fear the Lord, the Lord will bring, him, bring, bring them to himself to spend eternity with him and that we will live out eternity created, uh, enjoying the Lord the way we were created to enjoy him. Living in the fear and admonition of the Lord and displaying the wisdom and righteousness that Christ provides is encouraging and instructive to the world. In this way, we're the aroma of Christ, not a puffed up bunch of know-it-alls trying to win argument after argument and put other people in their place, but a people who don't have all the answers to life's uncertainty, but live in joy and hope as we wait for our Savior's return. And while we live, we prepare ourselves to give an answer for the hope that we have, because living this way will certainly make no sense to a watching world. The fear of the Lord builds in us a consistency and a joy that will draw the world to us. It's in this way that we reflect the character of God and bring glory to his name in uncertain times. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.10 that through the church, the manifold, this group right here, through this church, through the church universal, but certainly in this church too, as a, as a glass of just pulling a glass out of the water that the Lord holds up to Spring, Texas and says, if you want to know what God's like, look right here. Look at this church. We are um, committed. We uh, are the manifold wisdom of God. We are revealing to the heavenly realms what God is like. We are committing to, when we commit to live for the glory of God, we make known what God is like. And this is according to the eternal purposes that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, even in times of adversity, so we don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid. So we don't lose heart in our suffering. We don't lose heart in difficulty. We don't lose heart when death sneaks up on us. Even when we can't make sense of it. Because by fearing God, we live to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, please forgive us for trusting in our own schemes and methods. 
Forgive us for trying to eliminate our mediator and seek righteousness that we can achieve or wisdom that the world may be impressed by. But Father, if we boast in anything, we pray that we would boast that we know you, that you are our wisdom and our righteousness, that you are our king who can make sense out of a vain life. But Lord, we thank you that because Christ has died for us and has been risen and will one day return again, we know that our labor is not in vain. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.